0: Good morning. I am Jan Fran and welcome to The Briefing. It is the podcast that gets you up to speed every morning with the news that you need to know. And today is Wednesday, the 1st of July. Still no Tom, but we've got an Annika. Hello, Annika.
1: Good to be with you, Jan. Happy July.
0: Happy July to you. How are you doing down there in Canberra in the middle of winter? We've officially hit the middle month.
1: Look, it's not great. I thought we'd had the most mild, beautiful June. Something's happened overnight. I've woken up. It is freezing, Uh, but only eight weeks to go. That's how you get through a Canberra winter. It's just the countdown is on.
0: Get through it. Well, it's freezing in Canberra. It's very hot in Siberia, as it turns out, which is where we're going to head a little bit later in the show for our briefing topic. Uh, A heatwave across the Arctic. We're asking, is that going to push us? to a global
2: tipping point. Climate change is happening now. It's not a future problem. It's not something for our kids or grandkids to worry about. We need to worry about it and we need to worry about it now.
1: Yeah, that's later on in the show. We're gonna take a deep dive into what it means for the planet and can we do anything to change this?
2: Before we get to that
0: though, let's check out what is making news this morning. Well, Melbourne's coronavirus hotspots are going back into lockdown from midnight tonight. This applies to 10 postcodes and 36 suburbs in and around Melbourne.
1: Premier Daniel Andrews is hoping this will curb a coronavirus outbreak in the city. 64 people tested positive in the last 24 hours, and that brings the total active cases in Victoria to more than 2,000.
2: Uh, There have been some 233 new cases of coronavirus since last Thursday. That is an unacceptably high number and one that poses a real threat to all of us. Uh, It is incredibly important that we take some next steps to deal with this challenge right now.
0: And he is absolutely taking some next steps, which include these.
2: For the abundance of caution, the second thing that I have done uh, is inform the Prime Minister that I would like him to divert all flights uh, away from Melbourne for the next two weeks.
0: Yeah, part of the reason why Dan Andrews has done that is because some of the outbreaks have been linked to staff in quarantine hotels breaching protocols. So he's basically said if there's anyone on a plane that requires quarantine, they're going to have to go to another state.
1: And if you do live in one of those thirty odd suburbs, you have to take it pretty seriously because there'll be booze bus style checkpoints in and out for the next four weeks.
0: Yeah, booze bus makes it sound a lot funner than what it is. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it is a booze cruise. It's not a hen's night. It is pretty serious. And look, for those people in those particular suburbs in Melbourne, it will be a stage three lockdown. So you only have four reasons to leave home, which is work, exercise, medical care, and essential shopping. There will also be increased police presence and, as the Premier says, on-the-spot fines. So it's not a great time for Victoria, but hopefully you'll get through it.
1: Well, as one state locks down, another one opens up, almost. Queensland is reopening its borders in nine days to everybody but Victorians.
0: Yeah, here's the Queensland Premier, Anastasia Palaszczuk. From this Friday, July 3 at 12 noon, anyone who has travelled from Victoria, including Queenslanders, will be prevented from entering or will have to quarantine at a hotel at their own expense for two weeks. Oh man, that is not easy, especially for Victorians wanting to see family and friends in Queensland. She's not the only Premier to take some tough measures on Victorians.
1: We are increasingly concerned about the outbreaks which are occurring in Victoria and so we are not in a position to remove our border on the 20th of July. That was South of Australian Premier Stephen Marshall there. The New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian says while borders are not technically closed between New South Wales and Victoria, to exercise caution and she doesn't want Victorians flooding into the state.
0: You are the boss of who comes into your home. Do not allow anyone from a hotspot in Melbourne or from Greater Melbourne to come into your home. You have the right to say no. Please, if you're a loved one, a friend or a family member, please don't come up at this time. Yeah, that is going to make a family reunion or family occasions a little bit awkward in the state of New South Wales, I think. I guess the reason why she's probably taking a little bit of a tough stance is because New South Wales is preparing to ease restrictions today. Indoor venues will no longer be restricted to 50 people. So there's no upper limit, but you will still have to maintain a one person per four square metres rule, however that's measured. Does someone have un- a measuring tape to do this? This is what <laughs> spins me out about the one person every four square metres.
1: I just imagine that you've got to spin around with your arms out and no one's <laughs> allowed within that sort of space. But look, I can understand why they feel this way, but it's hard to imagine no one who's been, you know, with symptoms hasn't already actually left some of these areas. I know they're trying really hard to quarantine them, but we know how quickly people move around Australia and I really I worry how long it's going to take to get into another state. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Well, we can't travel internationally just yet, but Aussies are now officially welcome back in the European Union.
0: Yeah, look, that makes me feel good, even though it will have no practical outcome for us. Uh, we are one <laughs> of 14 countries that have made the cut. This includes Canada, Japan, Morocco, and South Korea. Um, no surprises that the US was left off that list, though. Overnight, senior US Dr. Anthony Fauci said that they were actually heading in the wrong direction. We are now having 40 plus thousand new cases a day. I would not be surprised if we go up to 100,000 a day if this does not turn around. Yeah, I'm somewhat surprised that the EU is uh, opening its borders to some extent to certain countries, especially given that the World Health Organization has warned that the worst could be yet to come.
1: It does seem a little strange, doesn't it? You know, especially after seeing those pictures come out of Italy over the last few months. But And it also implies you can just get on a plane directly and get there, that, you know, when you're travelling from Australia, you don't have to have stopovers on the way. So, look, it sounds like a logistical nightmare, but good luck to anyone that wants to give it a go.
0: And looking at digital borders now, uh, one of the world's largest countries, India, has banned the app TikTok. So, as of today, it has been officially blocked and this is over concerns that the Chinese app and dozens of other apps are stealing or misusing users' data.
1: TikTok India denies it's ever shared anyone's info with foreign powers, including the Chinese government.
0: Yeah, now this comes amid, I guess, a broader context of clashes, rather violent clashes, between Chinese and Indian soldiers along the border. Uh, this happened two weeks ago. India says that 20 soldiers were killed. And it's been described as the worst military crisis between the two countries in 60 years. So banning the app TikTok and 50 other Chinese apps in the country just two weeks after those clashes is definitely interesting. unrelated, Jan. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I don't want to I don't want <laughs> to speculate and draw any conclusions here, but um, but certainly tensions are high between the two countries. The other thing is that India is. It's a very technologically forward country. You have 200 million users of the TikTok app in India, including celebrities who have, you know, millions of followers. So banning it, I think, is going to reverberate in the country quite a bit.
1: Hundred percent. A lot of people have no interest in politics. I can imagine if they tried that here, banning Instagram or Facebook, there'd be a huge, up, you know, uproar, and maybe people would start to take a bit of interest in politics.
0: Yeah, let the people lip sync for their lives in peace. <laughs> let them dance.
1: This story starts in the Siberian town of Vohoyansk, notorious for its bone-chilling sub-zero temperatures.
0: And when we say bone-chilling, we do mean bone-chilling. So the lowest temperature recorded in this town was minus 67 degrees Celsius. That is freezing. But this June, something very unusual happened.
1: A town in Siberia has recorded a record high temperature. A
0: heat wave of historic proportions occurring in the Arctic. Kukoyans, the pole
2: of cold. In Siberia, on Saturday, 38 degrees Celsius. The Arctic
0: is feverish. One of the fastest warming parts of the planet.
1: Likely the warmest temperatures ever recorded. So the temperature in Bohansk reached 38 degrees, which was 18 degrees hotter than the maximum daily average for June in that part of Russia. Unsurprisingly, this set an all-time temperature record for the region and prompted fears about the long-term consequences of Siberia's recent heat waves and consistently high summer temperatures.
0: Now, we've known for years that the Arctic is warming at twice the global average, and one side effect is that the permafrost, now that's the frozen ground across the Arctic that melts and refreezes every year, is permanently shrinking.
1: And what's got scientists really worried is that it's no longer thawing gradually, at least not geologically speaking, and it's allowing masses of carbon that's been locked under that frozen dirt to escape.
0: Now, as someone who stopped doing science in Year 10, I would like to know, what does this mean for the planet and what, if anything, can we do to change it. So fortunately, someone who has very much continued studying science is here to help us answer those questions. Dr. Sarah Perkins-Kirkpatrick is from the Climate Change Research Centre at the University of New South Wales. She joins us now. Good morning, Doctor. The hottest day on record in Siberia. Uh, Should we panic here or are we staying alert, not alarmed?
2: I think it's a bit of both. I don't like to panic when I see things like this because it really, you know. has a state of alarm about it but it is like it's really concerning it's not just the hottest day that they've had but it's basically been hot there since january and they've had temperatures since january january on average eight degrees above their average so it's, yeah, it's not, not necessarily been a heat wave, but this, you know, months and months of long heat. So that, that's what concerns me more is, yes, records are breaking. That That's extremely concerning. But the fact it's been so hot for so long up there as well, like that, I think that's more of a concern.
1: So why are we seeing much more severe sort of consequences of global warming in the Arctic compared to, say, the rest of the world?
2: Yeah, so for a couple of reasons. Firstly, um, there's a lot of land in the Northern Hemisphere compared to the Southern Hemisphere, and that tends to absorb heat more easily and uh, heat up more easily than ocean, which is what surrounds most of the Southern Hemisphere, and also interactions with the ice and uh, changes in the ice um, and the land surface. So ice tends to reflect a lot more sunlight back to space than what land and, and dark ocean does. And as that ice melts, which has been an alarming trend or you know, a concerning trend over the last 20 or 30 years, Less sunlight's been reflected into space and more's been absorbed by the Earth, which is therefore heating up the atmosphere when it's readmitted. So that's that's the general physics about why it's heating up much more quickly than the rest of the Earth. Mm. We hear a bit about
0: permafrost. Um, so my understanding is it's, it's sort of basically frozen ground. Can you tell us why that's so important and what actually happens when that starts thawing?
2: You bang on the money there. That's pretty much what it is. It's just frozen ground and it can freeze and unfreeze depending on the seasons but what's happening now is more of its unfreezing and it's unfreezing for longer and within permafrost there's a lot of methane and and carbon dioxide as well so as it thaws out that's actually being released into the atmosphere which can then go on to increase the greenhouse effect even further and on top of that as the soil kind of unfreezes it kind of expands and it affects the composition of the ground. So for example, with all this unfreezing that's been happening because of this massive heat wave, uh, there was an oil spill up in the Arctic, which was they're blaming on the fact that the ground basically unthawed, which made their oil drums unstable and it all leaked out. So if we don't stop this, how much greenhouse gas
1: could escape through permafrost? What do we is there any comparable rate we can sort of compare what's happening there to?
2: Look, that's a really good question. I don't think we have A good enough answer it's definitely an area of active research Uh, every time something like this happens there's scientists saying that look this is really concerning we're trying to measure it it, but we can't necessarily get a complete grip on it it's i guess one of the unknowns of the impacts of climate change it's i guess what we call a positive feedback loop there's greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that's melting the permafrost which is then releasing more greenhouse gases into the atmosphere which goes on to increase warming but exactly how much will be released um we're not 100% sure yet.
0: So that seems like this sort of self-perpetuating cycle. How do we, can we even stop it? And is this reversible? And if so, what actually needs to happen to start reversing some of the damage? Look, the
2: first thing we need to do, the very first thing, is reduce our emissions of greenhouse gases. And that can be done by many ways. The most important one, or the, the, the one that causes most of the warming, most of the emissions is relying on fossil fuels. Now, it's not the whole piece of the pie, but it's a large chunk of the pie. And that's what we need to do. The less greenhouse gases we have in the atmosphere, the less warming that will occur and the less intense or amplified these feedback systems will be. It's hard to say, you know, well, we, we know that, you know, we, we have limits on how much we can release. There's a lot of emphasis on in the next 20 years, we need to become a carbon neutral society or a world really. Um, that does sound drastic and it does take a lot of effort for that to happen. But the bottom line is, The more we reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, the better off the planet will be and the less warming we will see.
1: We hear that we don't have much time. You said 20 years there, and it's constantly that question of have we reached the point of no return? I want to know when we do the sort of calculations about how long we have to act on this, does that take in melting permafrost and, and the gases it could release? Is this something that has been calculated when looking at potential consequences?
2: To an extent yes but when we don't know how sensitive that relationship is or how intense that feedback will be it's hard to put it in completely so it's not completely ignored we're not like oh you know that's too hard basket we're not considering that it's to what extent do we put that in um ultimately though the more that's released from the permafrost melting in greenhouse gases you know methane and carbon dioxide the less we can actually admit from our own activities such as driving cars burning electricity that sort of stuff so it kind of leaves us less wiggle room when we're counting our greenhouse gas emissions, that may mean that we have less time to really reduce our emissions um, within a you know a reasonable amount.
0: Yeah, I guess we're so far away from the Arctic, we're on the other side of the of the globe essentially. And I think sometimes when we hear about stories like this, which we've heard about for the last you know certainly years, if not decades it's hard to kind of get a clear picture of how it might affect us in our day-to-day life. Can you paint us a bit of a picture of why permafrost melting and sea ice melting in the Arctic affects us here in Australia?
2: Not to bring everything back to us, but let's do that for the minute. I think one way Australians can actually relate to what's going on is the fires that they're having up there. So they're actually having what they've been terming zombie fires where the fires were actually burning from last season but within the peat and under the ground. And, like, we don't have peat fires here admittedly, but all of a sudden with this extra heat, bang, they've got all these fires starting up again and they, they can't be reached by the firefighters. That's what we experienced last summer. So you can imagine how, you know, catastrophic literally it was here that's happening up there and this land is burning when no one can get in and fight it so I think there can be a bit of empathy from Australians with 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 what's going on up north um Mm. and, and how bad this really can be and what's what's actually going to be destroyed in terms of what else it can mean for us it's another sign that the climate is changing and it's changing fast we're seeing heat waves increase everywhere, both in their frequency and intensity. And this isn't just another piece of the puzzle showing you know, that that's happening. Mm.
1: I heard some interesting research recently that people will look at an app on their phone to find out what the weather's doing tomorrow and they'll believe it. But when it's longer term or 20 years down the track, there seems to be some sort of scepticism about it. How do we sort of, I guess, sharpen the focus so that people realise that there will be consequences for this, whether that is more bushfires, I guess. How do you explain to people that this will affect our everyday life?
2: Look, that's a really good question and I don't think I have a silver bullet. It's something that I've struggled with myself with over the last decade or so. But what I always come back to, I come back to two points. One, that climate change is happening now. It's not a future problem and it's not something for our kids or grandkids to worry about. We, we need to worry about it and we need to worry about it now. And that's just not in terms of reducing our emissions. We're already seeing evidence that it's occurring now and quite strong evidence as well. So it's, that's why we need to do something. We can't just wait for the future. It's we're well beyond that part. And secondly, you know, even if you know, this is I, this is a massive hypothetical, but even if it's not our fault that the climate is changing or it's not warming just because of our emissions, we're still damaging the planet. Ultimately, we're doing activities that's putting pollution into the atmosphere. And, when you know, we're using more than we need. No other species on Earth has really done that and survived for very long. So we have an obligation to make sure that we protect the planet uh, for not just for us and not just for our children but for everything else that lives here so that's what I tend to go back to and a lot of people tend to at least stop arguing with me when I make those points um yeah but it's, everyone's different some people are like oh my goodness yes I need to do something about this and I need to do it now other people are like oh it's it's such a complex issue it's too hard for them to handle and they just want to go and bury their heads in the sand so it's it's really hard to navigate the, all those different types of people and, and kind of work out what you're dealing with straight away and what what might help them to see that this is this is a clear and present issue.
1: That was Dr Sarah Perkins Kirkpatrick there from the Climate Change Research Centre and Jan I thought what she said was really interesting about sort of the science we pick and choose that we want to believe versus the stuff that's perhaps a little bit inconvenient and we've seen it during COVID too we get told what to do, wear a mask or stay far away and yet people continually ignore the advice so sometimes science works and we're happy to abide by it, other times not so much and it really comes down to having that reflection of why we're doing this. It's not just for us, it's for a greater good.
0: Yeah, totally. Tomorrow on the podcast, we're going to take a look at the law. Is it still a boys' club? Half of Australia's female lawyers say they're being bullied by men. So is sexual harassment and bullying commonplace among Australian lawyers? That is what we are going to take a look at tomorrow on the briefing. And as always, if you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe at Podcast One Australia. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your wives, tell anybody that you run into on the street about the podcast and get in touch with us on social media. Slide into our DMs. We'll love you for it, I promise. Talk to you soon. Bye. A Podcast One production.